Welcome to This Artistic Life. On this podcast, we sit down with professional artists of all disciplines to talk about their journeys, what inspires them, and their unique perspectives from life off the beaten path. Brought to you in part by Artist Relief Tree, a relief fund for artists affected by cancellations due to COVID-19. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. Today's guest is Jenny Moser, a digital design and brand specialist and the founder and CEO of StageTime, a professional social network for the performing arts. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, hang out on this edition of uh, This Artistic Life. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting. So for those who don't know you, can you give us a little brief uh, background about who you are and what you do? Yep. So my name is Jenny Moser. I am the CEO of Stage Time. Uh, I am also a singer. And uh, in between there somewhere, I I had a small creative studio uh, that was putting out web design and, and branding for largely for artists and arts organizations. And did you move entirely away from the creative studio and are you focusing predominantly on stage time at this time or are you still kind of doing both parallel? Yes and no. Um, I still take on a few select projects for the design studio and we honor um, all of our work with our pre-existing clients. Um, but the work we do at stage time and the was completely born out of what we were doing uh, on the creative studio side. So we try to remain pretty close to that because it still really feeds what we're doing um, on stage time, not just for users and customers, but um, the whole ethos of what we're building, how we're building it, what it looks like and the why. Those are both the same. Nice. Yeah, I have a, a couple of uh, clients that I've sent to your page for uh, templates, artist templates, um, that kind of stuff. I know that your stuff has been a wonderful asset for um, for both experienced and um, emerging artists, which is great. I, lo- I love your work. Um, it looks real clean, real unique, um, definitely off the beaten path from your standard Squarespace and, and Wix and it's, it offers a, a slightly different uh, design experience. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges of creating that kind of um, bespoke and modern brand identity for classical singers specifically? Yeah, so it's tricky, first of all, to brand a person, right? That's always going to be the hardest thing because it's not a product. Yeah. I can't make your logo a, a banana. Uh, even if you right. love them, we're not selling bananas. That doesn't tell us what we need to know. <laughs> Um, and so then I'm pretty much left with headshots and words is, is what I start with. And so how do I take headshots and words and turn those into a graphic or digital asset that actually represents headshots and words? Um, so it took me a while to get that process down of what questions do I need to ask? Um, what tactics can I use to create those tangible, I mean, when I say tangible, we're always talking about digital here, but still yeah. that more that more comprehensive representation of a person. Um, and so that was probably the trickiest thing starting out was figuring out what that process looked like. And that was a ton of trial and error, no way around it, all trial and error. Yeah. I mean, you kind of created a, a distinct style when it comes to um this very, very niche clientele. Um, were there were there specific issues or challenges when it came to branding somebody that's dealing with um, a centuries old art form? Have you leaned more on a, a classic aesthetic, a, a modern take on it? How, like, it's a, it's a weird thing to be somebody who performs 400 year old music, 300 year old music, and then at the same time be like, I need to brand myself as a modern individual and a modern singer. Uh, how was that, that balance? I pretty much ignore the opera thing entirely. Um, Actually, one of my biggest problems with products that are put out for artists and those in the arts are that they're really telegraphy. Um, I actually considered outsourcing some of the logo work for stage time at first because I was thinking, oh, well, it's this big corporate venture. Maybe it's beyond what I'm capable of producing and maybe I don't want that responsibility. And then one of the first things I got back was a a logo and it had a spotlight. And I think that a lot of the stuff that is designed for artists ends up like that. It's got a spotlight or it's got a mic um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that that can be an extremely strong and appropriate choice. Um, But I think that there are a lot of artists who feel like, okay, well, 
if you visit my page and you see that I'm singing opera, if that's the first thing you see, that part's probably already evident. So I don't know how much more down the road of let me telegraph to you that I can also sing Baroque. I need to go with graphic materials. And so from that point on, it really just became a conversation of, well, what do you like and what are you drawn to? Because ultimately that that really translates into what did you walk into the room wearing uh, for that last audition? And how do you interact with people before and after performances? They're all parts of the same whole. So I focus more on that whole than I do on, um, but is this consistent with Mozart? I think there's this huge amount of confusion over who is visiting those websites. Um, and right now websites are designed to be a catch-all, right? Because we want them to appeal to whoever might be able to hire us. There's this perception of, I need to catch whatever fan base or budding fan base I might have. And I need to catch everybody in between. And from a marketing perspective and a deliverables perspective, that's a huge ask. And that's a really yeah. disparate set of people when you're talking fans, family, friends, and people in the industry who can hire me, let's not even touch the people in the industry who are 65 plus and not super comfortable with technology. We're talking about trying to create one thing that's filling a lot of different holes. So inevitably, you're going to get some some disconnects in the storytelling there. And if I want to learn more about, I, I don't know, um, Lisette Oropesa, let's say, and I already know who she is. When I visit her website, I don't need that website to scream opera singer to me. That's yeah. why I'm there. I'm already visiting her website. I don't need there to be curtains or uh, stage pictures or something like that really baked into the fiber of the website. Then on the other side of the equation, I, I don't think that the biggest problem with websites is that they are these silos. So if I am not Lisette and somebody is looking for me, that implies that they're probably actually already in the industry. It, it's right. not like that. It's not like, um, I don't know, peers or potential hirers or fans are sitting there Googling um, 26 year old soprano Bloomington <laughs> and coming across me like people don't stumble across these websites. And so if they're already looking for you, it's because they already know something about you. And that's either, do I want to hire them? In which case they need to see you, they need to hear you, and they need to be able to make a, a realistic decision based on what you have about what they want to do next, if anything. And if they're coming at it from the fan side, they already know you're an opera singer. So trying to really hammer that story down their throat, I think just wastes time. I'd rather show up to the website and see oh my God, I haven't seen this before. It's more beautiful. I'm more compelled to spend time here and learn more because my experience is interesting and unique. So that's yeah. the direction I usually try to take it. I totally agree. I also think it's funny that people assume that they're going to be cast from a Google search. Like who's, who's casting anything that's Googling, you know, Sopranos, New York City, and then hoping yeah. to run across somebody that they love. Like that's, that's not how any of this works. Um, mm -hmm. No, starting with that assumption, right off the bat that they know who you are and they know what you're about to some degree. I mean, it also takes a, a large amount of weight off of your shoulders of trying to hit, like you said, that massive amount, like who, who's that demographic? Initially, it seems like everybody. And now you've just, you've knocked out 70% of the people that are that everybody. And now you're like, okay, now I've got a, a more narrow lane to deal with. What are like, what are three quick do's and don'ts of making an artist website? Ooh, um, do make sure that it's really, really clean. Um, do take inspiration from things that you love and do make it your own. Because if you do those three things, you are going to end up with something that is, is clean, that you're drawn to, and that works with the materials that you have. Um, I would say definitely don't be shy about um, leaning into things that you're drawn to. Obviously, you know, don't carbon copy someone else's work. Um, but all art, all creativity, we're all just building on each other and trying different iterations. Um, I spend tons of time on Pinterest. I think other designers would probably say Dribbble or Behance or um, other pieces of the Adobe or the Figma world or something. Um, but I didn't start as a designer. And so I just used the resource that I, I already knew, which was Pinterest for, for outfits and decor. Um, and I love the design resources there. And they do tend to be a little bit atypical. Um, when you go on other websites with resources like a Dribbble or a Behance and you're looking at design specific things, um, they're going to already be pretty product heavy where, uh, or digital product heavy. Whereas on Pinterest, I would find things like, oh, I love that label for this apothecary. 
Um, and I really love the way that these lines and this text setting are locked up together. And I think that's really strong. Well, by the time I snag that and I flip it around into, okay, but I like this line a little further to the left and I'm gonna use this font instead. And it's really not gonna work at that scale. So I'm gonna blow it up and left align it and put a headshot behind it. I'm not copying someone else's work. I've just taken what worked about it, made it work for me, and then also fit it into how it actually worked for myself and for the client, which is ultimately my job. So I would say those are the three big do's. Um, the don'ts, I would say um, don't, don't take yourself out of your comfort zone if it's not going to reward you. So don't, don't put some pressure on yourself to manipulate more colors, more fonts, more materials, more photos, more objects than you, than you can um, because I would be willing to wager that they're not telling your story by the time it's all said and done, that you are then actually quite frustrated with the number of hours you've spent on Wix or Squarespace, and that you are then much more liable to go and hire a web designer to do it for you. My best clients are the ones who already try to do it themselves always. <laughs> oh, absolutely. They know, and they also right off the bat understand how much work actually goes into it and oh. how much prep <laughs> and what design really means. And yeah. Yep. <laughs> And that's huge because it's probably the only time in their entire life that they're going to hire a designer. That may not be true moving forward because web is more prevalent now than it was 10 years ago and they're going to need to update things. But at this point, most people haven't hired a designer before and they probably won't again. And so there's this huge learning curve for both parties. And, and, and mine initially was how do I walk somebody who's never worked with a designer and may never work with a designer again through the process of building a massive media piece? Um, and I also want to make that easy on the client too, because they certainly don't know. Um, and that was definitely a challenge. So don't make there's it harder a, on yourself. There's a remarkable amount of um, client education that goes into the creative aspect of branding um, that is is much more in depth. I know when I work with photography clients, there's a fair amount of um, of educating the client on on the process as well as the aesthetic and portfolios and um you know are, and that's all after are we even the right fit for each other you know does does my aesthetic meet their aesthetic kind of thing do you have those clients that come to you and say i want this and it's not even remotely what you do oh absolutely uh, if they come up to me and they say i really want bold really dark and then some neon colors which happened once i was like cool. Have you ever seen anything in my portfolio? <laughs> and can I tempt you with something that's maybe like baby blue or blush colored? <laughs> yep. um, so, so that's happened before too. And I think we actually did end up settling on something that felt like them. And it was a cool opportunity for me to decide that, you know, my version of neon, which I think ended up being like peach uh, was going to be um, <laughs> outside my comfort zone. And it was, it ended up being a really fun project, but there have been others um, where people have said, Hey, this isn't what I was looking for. And it's, that's the conversation of, well, I think I was pretty transparent about the kind of work that I do and what's in my wheelhouse. And I've, I've followed the specs to the best of my ability, but um, you know, Hey, I'm a, I'm a person, not a machine. And uh, right. I don't work with bold, dark colors. <laughs> do you work much outside of the opera industry? Yeah, I've done a number of small local businesses. I've had some other cool one-off projects. I designed a, I designed a lookbook for, uh, the Playboy Club in New York City at one point. That was really fun, fun little nice. side gigs. Um, yeah. And I was actually surprised to learn how many of the struggles that individual singers have also applied to small businesses. Absolutely, 100%. I, I would say that probably 50% of my clients are artists in some way, and then the rest of them are small businesses. In fact, the um, the direction I'm going with with my consulting firm is to specifically work with freelancers who want to turn their side hustle into a full-time job. And oh, cool. when I work with artists, specifically classical musicians, it's funny because the numbers that work for small businesses are the same numbers that work for artists. Like mm -hmm. it's the, it's the same templates. It's the same business concepts. And ultimately artists are a business. And that's one of those things that in the classical music world, we tend to ignore or forget. Uh, it's not really, it's not really discussed a whole lot in the conservatory setting. At least I know when I went through multiple degrees in that, in that setting, it was barely discussed at all. But when I worked in the contemporary music world, business is first. It's the first thing on the list. So we have to talk, obviously the main reason that you're here is to chat about <laughs> stage time. Um, first, tell us what stage time is. 
Okay. Well, I'll use the, I'll use the parallel that I don't use with investors, which is stage time as a professional network for the performing arts. If I'm chatting with non-musicians, I usually go the stage time is a LinkedIn for the performing arts route. But since most of us in the performing arts aren't particularly active or comfortable on LinkedIn, that's not a helpful parallel. So professional yeah. network for the performing arts. So what led to the creation of a completely unique and novel social media platform with an extremely niche user base? Yeah. Okay. I'll give you the story. Um, so we just talked about websites. I published one for the first time about three years ago. I think it was March, 2017 or so. And within about three months after that, it was totally self-taught, just tried it, scrapped it, tried it, scrapped it, spent a few hundred hours, chose my CMS. Um, after we published that one, I ended up fielding about a hundred requests for artists' websites in the next two or three months. Um, so the first few requests that rolled in, I was, you know, it was really flattering. And I was thinking maybe I'm a really good designer. And then after that, it was like, oh no, you're a fine designer. And there's not really a resource like this for the demographic that you're working with. Um, and so I took a quick internship at Opera Theater of St. Louis as a graphic designer, thinking that I was going to, uh, or needed to learn a ton about being a designer. Um, I did and I didn't. I mostly just practiced a ton for an entire summer on digital banner ads that were like three inches tall and one inch wide. And I would have to take like a tiny piece of season artwork and fit a, a mar marble sculpt from the PSD file up in the corner and still <laughs> fit like the eight word text treatment with world premiere and like 18 credits with it all in four inches. Yep. Um, and so by the time I, I came out of that, I was feeling a lot more comfortable about getting more formal with my services, charging more, um, starting to put together kind of a, a package situation. Um, and so during that was during grad school and I hired a small team I filed an LLC. We still couldn't keep up with requests. Um, so we ended up, that's when we did templates. We thought, well, um, there, you know, there are so only so many hours we can cut out of this. There's only so short we can make the time commitment for us and so cheap we can make the time or the, the product for the, the end client. And we did want it to be something that was more attainable to more people in the arts. Um, so we thought, well, templates, let's, let's take this product and turn it into something that hopefully empowers individuals to be able to create this solution and maintain this solution themselves, gets the price down and still kind of respects our work and our time. Um, well, what ended up happening um, was that it was still too much work for most people. Um, it was fairly successful and that was really exciting too, but by and large, most of the sites actually came back to us and people said, Hey, I lo loved how it was originally. I moved too much stuff around, or I want to customize this element, or I added six pages and I broke it. Help. Can you reset it? Um, and it just became evident or you know, even things like what, what's a URL? What's a domain? How do I connect that? Can you host it? No, I can't. Sorry. Um, so just tons of stuff like that, where it became evident that individual websites were always going to be, in my opinion, a, a lift that is too hefty to require of your, your average or every musician. Um, and I think that there will still be people who have those websites and I'm excited for them if that's the right fit for them. But I do think that it is, um, a difficult, bulky, um, baseline or barrier to entry for the industry to just remain present. And I'm no longer convinced that a great website gets you ahead. I think a good website puts you on the map. I don't think that a good website gets you ahead of everybody else. I truly don't. Um, and so kind of with all that in mind, we had at that point <laughs> fielded over 800 requests for websites over the course of those three years. And it just kind of became evident that it wasn't slowing down. And of the 130-ish I think we had built, we had pretty much all the analytics to them because our artists didn't usually care to have access to those. So I would get their permission, aggregate everything into one Google account. And when you've done something that many times, patterns become super, super evident. Mm -hmm. And so I saw that most websites, whether they were mine and at the time, you know, 23, 24, sitting in grad school or clients of mine who were in their mid 30s or late 30s with careers at the Met all around the world, our websites got actually not dissimilar views per day on an average yeah. basis. Um, yeah. We're talking like maybe five, six views a day, 30 views a month. Um, and I always have clients joke who, and they say, I think half of those are me. Um, so it became evident that 
for as much of a big deal as we've made these pieces, for as expensive as that investment is, they're not really being leveraged. I would argue that the ROI is not there. And when I started to dig a little deeper, there were continued patterns that supported that. So I could see that spikes were coming to websites really only from within the industry. Every message to every contact form was, hey, I need your short bio. Hey, is this your updated headshot? Do you have a press kit I can access? Are you available? It was never like, I love you. I'm in Germany. Can I have a signed headshot? I think I've seen one of those in the past four years. Yeah. Um, and so it was like, oh, well, this is just an industry tool. I would see things like um, website spikes go up for three clients on a day in Santa Fe, New Mexico, on a day that there were no performances at the opera house, no press coming out about any operas, but there were house auditions. Um, and it, so it became super evident that these IP hits were a group of those who could potentially hire singers in a given day. It was, again, not fan bases. Mm -hmm. um, so the way the rest of the world has solved this problem of representing themselves fairly online, being able to update things easily, and then leveraging those great materials within their pre-existing networks or to find new people to add to their networks on LinkedIn. Uh, we obviously don't use LinkedIn because it doesn't really support media. Uh, it doesn't support a gig economy. Um, it's not beautiful. Uh, so that was where the idea for stage time was born. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree on it's an, it's an industry tool. When I talk to clients and say, I, I always reference it as basically your website for, if I'm talking to a singer, your website is basically the equivalent of my portfolio. Like mm -hmm. people are going to know who I am. They're going to know what they're looking for and they're going to be looking for something specific. And that's why they're going to go to my site. It's not going to be, you know, a stumbling across it. It's going to be, I'm going there for a specific reason. And like you said prior, those people are already going to be industry individuals. And I know that when I sit on casting panels, I see on average, probably we're not counting 2020, obviously. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I usually see between 500 and 600 singers a year for the different casting panels that I'm either asked to consult on or companies that I work with. And I'm the guy who sits in the room and pulls up the website because I'm the first thing I'm looking for is not not is there a website but are all of the materials there that i need can it is mm -hmm. it a one-stop shop for me to say okay yeah a press gets there that i can download an epk there are multiple other um they've got youtube videos up that are recent recordings so i know that if i really want to dig deeper into them after they've left the room i can do that that's there um yeah it's the industry people that are digging around on those websites and like you said that roi is putting up a site is if you're not doing it yourself can be a massive cost. And I know a couple of people that I work with regularly who do corporate websites and they easily bill in five figure websites without, you know, mm -hmm. any question whatsoever. And when I tell that to singers, the look of shock on their face is just, and it's really disheartening when you're like, I already have no budget. Do I really need this? And do I really need to put this kind of money into it? Um, so that's one of the reasons that I was super intrigued by, stage time um when i first saw it or when i should say when i first heard it talked about i think sam hankey mentioned it to me um before it was really even close to developed um <laughs> how did you go about the um the actual build process i mean from from funding to timeline to the the actual interfaces itself and then i know you've been scaling um consistently as you go and so you kind of had beta people and then uh, a selected invite list. Can you talk about that process? Because this is so far out of the scope of most people. Um, it's really interesting to talk to somebody who's actually created a social platform. Yeah. So um, I, I don't know that if this would be my top recommendation for seeking out venture capital, but for me, it was a lot of trial and error. Uh, that was fine with design. I don't know that I would recommend it. Um, but I did have to do a lot of learning as I went. Um, and so I work at a co-working space in Bloomington, that has a, a huge support network. So I, I feel like I always have to reference them because there's been somebody in-house who can answer almost all of my questions um, or tell me what I don't know, which is also a huge part of the process. Mm -hmm. um, but let's see, I started on this in October of 2019, just the concept. I met somebody else, we chatted about it. They were interested in investing. Um, they ultimately got pulled into other projects because of the pandemic, but um, they were a nice starting partner to bounce ideas around with. Um, we, or, or I did, uh, let's see, how do I think about this? Sorry. Yeah. 
So it was October 2019. And we had this idea, um, kind of after all of the website stuff. And I wanted to get started. And um, I thought at the time, well, I'm not really capable of building or designing a product, but I have some idea of what I think this thing could be in my head. So let me just get it down on paper. And so I drew it on a whiteboard. I built it just visually in Wix so that you could scroll through it. You could see it with a couple of animations. Um, and I sent it to a couple of friends and said, hey, what do you think? Would you use this? And they were like, oh, oh my God, why isn't this live now? So I went back to the people I had talked to and said, yeah, they would love it. And they said, okay, you know, get started. Um, and I was like, what, what do you mean get started? How does one build a, build a product? How does one, a tech startup? What's a tech startup? I'm a singer. Um, but I, I really, I mean, I think I watched the social network the first day that I met this other guy. And I, I really let myself go down that rabbit hole with a bottle of wine and a bag of popcorn. I was like, well, let's do it. Let's, let's do it, Zuckerberg. Um, uh, and then I, I started to do my research. So there was a ton of education, a ton of research. I have interviewed probably a hundred people, um, a combination of colleagues, clients, teachers, mentors, directors, conductors, administrators, directors of casting, general directors, um, a ton of managers, basically anybody I could get my hands on to say, um, you know, would you use this? And then I got a lot smarter about the questions. And I said, how do you currently use social media for your profession? What role does your website play? What are you frustrated with? Do you use LinkedIn? And then I would say, okay, well, what about this? And they would say, oh, I, yeah, that would solve my problems. I, I hate posting about myself. I'm not a publicist. I don't want to have to say hashtag thrilled to announce every time I win an encouragement award. But that's also relevant. That's relevant to my professional story. It may not be the victory of all victories, but it is part of my narrative. And it's the thing that's going to build that trajectory, which is so important in a gig economy, because we're not getting a single job that says, okay, great, you work at, you know, X level for Coca-Cola. So we know that you are great at this job to some extent, we really have to tell that story ourselves. Um, so I focused on just learning what that would look like for people. And then I started on the product design it became evident that the more you could do yourself with a startup, the more favors you were doing yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I learned about product design programs. I learned those programs. I did all the product designs. I learned how to make my prototypes function so that I could communicate to people, hey, not just let me tell you about this thing, but let me show you what it does or show you what it could do or what it looks like. Um, and pretty much as soon as people could see it, they were excited about it because I think I had done my due diligence and made sure that the product was actually designed in a way that looked like it was for them. It translated to them right away. This is going to house all your information. It's going to make you feel like you have agency over your career. It is going to facilitate those $2,000 headshots in a friendly way. I'm not relegating them to a one square inch circle in the corner of your LinkedIn profile because it's human capital. We're buying and selling human capital. Yeah. Um, and so I spent a few months on that. I had two amazing developers lined up to um, build the product out for equity. Um, and then in about 48 hours, right at the beginning of the pandemic, it was in those like two weeks where the, the whole world felt like it was going crazy. I know it was a whole year, but it was that, that first month where people were jumping on planes and going to move in with family and really changing their situations. Um, and in 48 hours, those two developers both pulled out of the project and I got my first funding. So I went from two amazing like Bay area personnel that I developed these incredible relationships with um, and $0 to having, I think 35 K and zero developers. And so I was like, weird, weird, weird week, <laughs> weird week shut at home alone <laughs> over here. Um, some of that was from the state of Indiana. They had a cool technical assistance program, which is, it's not a grant, but it wasn't venture capital, which was cool. Yeah. Um, and then uh, a portion of that was our first venture capital investment from a big firm in Indiana. Um, and to do a little bit of translating, it was actually something called um, the Community Ideation Fund from this particular um, VC firm, which was great because it was a, it, basically the earliest stage investment they could make where they're saying, you don't have a product, you don't have customers, you don't have revenue, but we like what you wrote down on that napkin. Um, and I will say my pitch was much more formal than that. And it was a very formal process, but it still was about as early an entry point into VC as one can possibly get. Yeah. Um, 
So that was, I think, April. Um, and with that, since I had no developers, I tried to hire other developers. I combed my network. I met some awesome people. But ultimately, it was a global pandemic. And even though that's not an insurmountable amount of cash, it's not enough to build the type of application we're talking about here with stage time. Um, and finally, I got sick of trying to pin people down during the global pandemic. And a friend of mine and I in town knew of some other software that we were pretty sure we could manipulate ourselves. And so we, uh, we kissed that money goodbye and did it ourselves uh, and really hoped it would work. Um, and it did. And the second we knew that it would work, we started to speak publicly about it because we knew we could deliver on what we mm -hmm. wanted to deliver to people. Um, the first day I posted about it, we had 300 people sign up. My phone turned off because it kept buzzing. Um, and when I was able to report back to investors I had talked to, not just the ones who had invested, but everybody I had been kind of generating relationships with and asking for advice and saying, hey, what do you think? I was able to then shoot off that email that says, hey, just post it on my personal Facebook. Uh, craziest thing happened. We had 300 signups. Thanks so much for your help and support. I really appreciate it. And I started getting all these emails back saying, hey, that doesn't really happen outside of the Bay Area, especially products with virality don't don't happen. You must be onto something. Who are these people? How can we help you? And so shortly after that, I had the opportunity to pitch for a, a full-blown seed round um, in August. And so I, I did that. Um, I have worked on my pitch deck till I am asleep at my computer for a year and a half now um but it, it worked and we were able to secure the capital we needed to stay in business for about a year and a half um so that was that was august we started building and um yeah we've been in it ever since awesome uh do you have plans on monetizing the platform how do you look at at future funding <laughs> yes. So, I mean, it's a, it's a venture capital endeavor. So yes, uh, the investors um, would, would roll around. Uh, <laughs> God, that would be grand. Uh Yes. Yes, we will be monetizing. Um, it's not something that we talk about a ton right now, not because we don't have plans to or because we want to keep it secret from people. But given that most of the industry is unemployed, it would not be an appropriate time to, to waltz in and ask people to, to, you know, swipe your credit card here. Um, yeah. Everything that we have that we have deployed and published so far is free and always will be free. We wanted there to be a valuable free tier so that mm -hmm. you could get on stage time, create a profile that you felt proud of, connect with people who are in your actual network without hitting paywalls or limitations or wondering, you know, when are they going to charge me for this? So what's on stage time now? Free. Always will be. Um, we've got a ton of other ideas for and, and things that we're building both on the individual artist side and then really exploring the organization and agent side to determine, you know, what tools can we empower people with to make mm -hmm. life a little bit easier. So that's the focus for monetization. And I, I, I get sometimes the hesitancy we hear from people around, well, when are you going to charge me? What are you charging for this? What are you doing? Why is this new? Um, but I prom all of our plans uh, really just involve what are the administrative tasks in the industry right now that are a huge freaking headache how can we make life easier for the person who does have to hear 600 singers a year and is sitting in the back of the room trying to type website URLs in from physical resumes? How can we make that not the standard? Because that's a pain in the ass. That's a pain yeah. in the ass for everybody. It's a pain in the ass for you because you have to sit there and thumb through these resumes, type things in. You have to hope that the information is up to date, that it's giving an accurate representation of the artist, that you can actually share it with somebody else. For the artist, they have to sit there thinking, it, I hope they spelled my name right. Is my website up to date? Yes, it's up to date, but it's only up to date because I just paid my designer 300 bucks that I didn't really have to pay them to update that website. Um, and I think that's just a bad way to do business for both parties. Um, yeah. And so we'd like to step in and help facilitate that in a way where it takes cost and um, labor and like shitty labor off of those two parties. It, it's yeah. not really a, a plan to swoop in and say, you know, Swipe here for a shiny new toy that's not going to do anything for you. <laughs> I think that people are often scared of the monetization of, of social media, um, but that's when it's a personal thing. But when mm -hmm. this is a, this is an investment in your business, which is your art form, which is also your daily life. It's that combination of things um, that, again, artists tend to forget. So there are ways to make it work. Um, I also like the fact that you you always want um, a free tier. I think that's, that's really cool. Always. Yeah. 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 I that's when really I get cool. it. I, thanks. I get it. And I, I, I get the hesitancy. Um, 
but also it's, it is, it's the cost of doing business. Um, and I would much prefer for this option, you know, whatever we settle on, don't hold me to anything I say in this podcast, but whether it's $3 a month or $9 a month or $15 a month and, and whatever you get for that, um, I, I hope that it is an option um, alongside or maybe even instead of your website so that if you're somebody who says, you know, that might be the right choice for me in 10 years, um, yeah. then, then, okay, by all means, go drop that capital, have a great time, find the designer of your dreams uh, and just love that portfolio. Yeah. But if you are saying, you know, would love to have that, but realistically, that's not a place where I want to spend the cost of, you know, my entire family of fives vacation for the next two years. Yeah, don't. There should be another option. That's that's way too high a barrier to barrier to entry, um, yeah. in my opinion. And I, there's I, a uh, mid ground. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I talk regularly with so I, I do branding, marketing, consulting work with several young artist programs. Mm-hmm. When I get students that are like in undergrad who don't need a full fledged massive website and don't need to throw down fifteen hundred to four thousand dollars on a website, mm-hmm. stage time would allow people to take advantage of that at a, at a totally different level. As long as people can find you somewhere, that's the important thing. So um, tell us a little bit about what the stage time experience is like uh, for either visitors or for users. Ooh, okay. So for, we'll go visitors first. Uh, stage time profiles are public, publicly visible, and they always will be. That's kind of a the tricky thing with a social media network, right? How many um, how many, how much information are we, um, are we making publicly available? But artists are a little interesting because we are trying to sell ourselves as the product from the jump. So mm-hmm. limiting that information based on whether or not the viewer is on the website would then ultimately just be unhelpful. So we, yeah. we had to think pretty hard about how to make the, the collaborator, um, experience valuable outside side of just, okay, well, now I can see this person's info because that's not really what it's about in the arts. I, I think a lot of us don't tend to actually keep our keep our cards crazy close in terms of personal data because you are, you're trying, you're trying to get hired. It's like, it's, it's right. Yeah. You, you find throw me. yourself out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Please God hire me. It's, yeah, it's a little <laughs> different. Um, so for visitors, yeah, you can consume those profiles. Um, you can't do a ton more because I would love for you to join stage time if you're within the industry. So I would hope that if you actually wanted to get in touch with the person or, or start to engage in some sort of communication or transaction that you would join the network to do so. Um, once you are on stage time, a huge part of the experience has been centered around um, how can we make this not painful for you? How can we make it super easy to do yourself? How can we, um, how can we really hybrid, highlight the collaborative aspect of the work that we do? How can we facilitate a gig economy is a huge part of it. Um, and then what do we do after that? What do we do after we're all set up and we've built beautiful profiles? Um, and I think that's a, a big question mark for a lot of our users right now. We're, we're building a lot. We're going to roll out a lot of new things this year. We're kind of right now on the, the, the very smallest, earliest version of stage time we'll ever see. Um, but yeah, I'd say that's what the experience is about. How can we make sure everybody, you know, looks and feels great about what they've put up. How can we make that experience really easy? Um, so that then when you do need to lean on your network, the, um, the, the piece that you would like to actually showcase or leverage is something that's easy for you to update and is already connective. Cause that's to me, the actual biggest problem with websites. Let's say you have the, the ultimate budget, you go out and you spend a ton of money, um, on a beautiful website. Uh, what do you do with it after that? Right. You, you launch it question mark on social media that's what you you post it you email it to family and friends when there's nothing else to a website launch in the arts it's not like you're like printing stickers with your headshot on them and giving them out or printing them on cookies in times square like that's it launch just means posted on instagram um and other than that the website's a silo like you and i talked about nobody's stumbling across it nobody's coming across you unless they're already thinking about you um, and that means that you still have to then distribute that product from a, from a supply chain perspective. Um, and if you're doing it yourself, that's probably going to be social media. If, if you're not doing it yourself, it's probably somebody else doing it on social media for you. Yep. Um, and so we are now in this position where you upload your videos to YouTube. You have your audio files somewhere on your computer, your headshots are somewhere else. You've amalgamated them all into a website and then you're distributing them on 
uh, Instagram and Facebook. We know you're not using Twitter um, and you probably have a half-baked empty LinkedIn profile for just in case. Um, and to me, that's a huge amount of time wasted on distribution channels that have, a again, a really low yield. And so my claim with stage time is not that I can get you more work or better work, rather that I can um, remove a lot of the the, the bullshit tasks one might have to yeah. do to try to get that set up and get it out to people um, before you can even get into the, okay, and what's the transaction? Am I hireable? Was I in the right place at the right time? And I think we've all seen the myriad social media posts saying, hey, anybody know of a, of a tenor who's available somewhere in the Northeast for these two days? We, had a, we have a sick Rodolfo and we need somebody to jump in for Bohem or I need a pianist. And you see somebody in that thread get the gig. And you're like, wait, who's this person? I've never heard of them. I would make yeah. a great Rodolfo. I'm available that weekend. I would happily fly to the region. Why wasn't I considered? Uh, well, we're using tools that were never designed for the purposes for which we use them to do our work. Yep. So yep. it's not surprising that there is no professional barrier and that we don't actually have access to a comprehensive network of professionals to lean on. Um, and so that's, that's the goal with stage time. And it's trickier to quantify at this exact moment because I'm not sitting here saying, book your next gig on stage time. Um, but I personally would rather lean on the connections that I've already made to get future work than I would just try to go audition after audition after audition. And yeah. right now there's not really an organic way for me to keep up with people. If I worked with a great director once for three weeks, I have to shoot him an email two years later, hope that he remembers me, um, ask him to advocate on my behalf and then hope somebody's on the other end is actually willing to receive that information. And I think that's a big ask of two mm -hmm. professional personnel in the industry. Whereas with stage time, the hope is that I could say, you know, Hey, just moved to blah, 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 uh, open for gigs and would love to, would love to meet other artists in the area or really excited to be based in Germany now, or, um, I'm free or I'm singing different rep, just those updates that would become part of the narrative, even though they're not part of a transaction, because I think that, um, most great transactions, most great ca casting or hiring transactions are born out of, um, are born out of great relationships as much as they are, um, great auditions. And as much as we all wish it was just about the voice and I, I wish it was just about the voice all day long. It's also about who are you in the rehearsal room? What kind of colleague are you? How do you deliver on what you're supposed to be doing? And how do you make the audience feel? Um, so it's never singular. And that's, that's the hope yeah. of stage time is that organic trajectory over a period of time with your whole network. Yeah. I mean, I, I literally teach individual like networking resource, uh, networking resource classes or, or how to network when I work with more clients one-on-one -on -one. and it's so much about the, the individual relationships. And it's not just the, like you said, I worked with this person and then two years later I try and hit them up that's awkward unless you've maintained the relationship over time and trying to maintain those relationships over standard social media like Facebook or Instagram. There's so much other noise that's not industry related that muddies that whole thing up. So the chances of seeing, first off, we all know the fact that the chances of seeing a post on Facebook um, or Instagram is about 30% of your followers are going to see your post and they're, they're going to Facebook is going to keep that post to 30% of your followers, unless there's engagement. And the moment there's engagement, it'll push past that. But that means that you, there are far people, far fewer people knowing or seeing your post about moving to Germany or changing your rep or doing a performance. We all think that, oh, you know, I've got 2000 followers on Facebook. They all saw that. No, maybe 500 saw it, if that, if you're lucky. Well, let's also acknowledge that uh, I would argue that probably 300 of the 500 people who saw it are not within the industry. And I think that's generous. Totally. It's probably 400 of the 500. And that's, that's the, the really kind of salt in the wound zinger for me yeah. is if you post, I see somebody post something professional and the only couple comments are family members. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is what that space is for. And that yeah. is a great space to share with family and friends and to include them in that part of your life, but they, they can't hire you. And to me, that also really muddies the purpose of the post because then the person who can maybe hire me is the same person who saw my mom's comment. Maybe is the, the Facebook <laughs> algorithm is then, yeah, I know. And the Facebook algorithm is then going to feed them 
um, you know, the, the birthday picture that my mom is going to post next week, (laughs) the baby picture that she posts every year, because they liked that last thing my mom had commented on. And you're getting this really confusing data narrative. Um, and it's not ultimately, uh, probably selling your professional story the way you would want to. And it leaves a lot more up to chance. Um, and I think especially, I mean, I, I started stage time before the pandemic, but the use case for stage time, you know, mid and after pandemic is I think even stronger because we're now, uh, I think much more aligned as an industry, um, about how important the digital representation is. I think we had Mm -hmm. some stragglers who were, uh, not willing to admit that pre-pandemic. And I think that's gone now. Unfortunately, the digital relationships are, are pretty much what we have right now. So, yeah. so having a space where um, you can keep your family and friends clued in is great. Having a different space where you can peddle your professional narrative to me would be even better. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny when we work with businesses, we will discuss the fact that uh, initially everybody said you want to be on as many social networks as you possibly can. Like that was originally the goal. But now when we really look at if a build a business is trying to grow itself, we say, find the the social network that uh, matches your workflow workflow that matches your your demographic that you are where you're people are that are going to see you. Um, and then you hang out there. You don't need to deal with uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, LinkedIn, all of these, like you don't need each one of those things. If your people that are paying attention to you from a PR perspective are on Instagram, hang out on Instagram. But if you're trying to build your business, if we can move those people in the industry to stage time, then it's dedicated. There's no noise. It's all a, a one-stop shop for the industry insiders. And I, I, I love projects that, um, that fill a void. They solve a problem that nobody else was trying to solve. And that's the reason why I was excited the first time I heard stage time. I was like, this has a shit ton of potential for the, for people <laughs> within the industry specific. So I seriously applaud you on that. How are you dealing with um, scaling? right now. We know for a fact there are about 2,500 singers coming out of conservatories every year, and that's in the United States alone. So with that many singers constantly just adding to the pile, how are you dealing with the scaling problem? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of the work we're doing now involves um, holding groups of people off until we feel that we have capacity to give them a valuable experience. It it, um, has absolutely nothing to do with, with who those people are. And whether or not I think they're, they're viable artists or not, um, that's an investor question we get a lot, you know, are you going for quality or quantity of user? Cause that's two very different products. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, we're still in the R and D phase. Um, even though it, it feels like we've, we've had these waves of rollout. Um, and while we're technically beyond beta testing, we're still early enough that we're determining, okay, if we put this workflow or action or feature in place, it serves 20% of our users. But if we make these tweaks based on what we just learned, it is a great fit for 95% of our users. Um, and so we spend actually a lot of time in that in that space, adding 100 or 200 new users to stage time and then digging back through to see what their experience is like from the second they get onboarded through to the first 10 collaborators they add. Um, mm-hmm. And for us and for a lot of, I mean, this would be true of any product, um, but our biggest priority right now is getting those processes so flawless that when we are ready to scale and we are ready to, um, you know, put a lot of more of our resources into user acquisition and marketing, that our conversion pipelines are um, fantastic, that we've already set it up so that we know exactly what valuable experience people are going to have from the second they get on the app. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want people to get on and say, okay, what do I do next? Um, but you also have to get them to a certain point to even learn what you could do next. There's a great book called the lean startup by Eric Reese in one portion of it. He, which I think personally is applicable to, um, to any new venture or new project, not just startups. Um, but he talks about his, one of his first startups, they labored and labored and labored over one of the features that they thought was the core value. And when they finally tested it with users, uh, nobody was signing up because their their landing page uh, wasn't doing what they wanted it to. So they had put so much work into step nine, and I'm sure they had done tons of work on steps one through eight. Um, but as it turns out, step one was broken. So they never even got the chance to, to, to test the steps after that. So um, as, as much as it feels like it, it holds us at a smaller scale for the time being, um, it's kind of the necessary work right now. But there are definitely plans to scale up well beyond that, to your point about the 
just the sheer quantity of artists that are out there. Yeah. I've had a few people ask me, well, why can't I sign up yet? And I said, my response tends to be, listen, do you want a platform that works when you're on it? <laughs> or do you want to be frustrated with it nonstop to the point where you stop using it? Because that latter one, neither of you want. The user doesn't no. want that. And you as running the platform don't want that. So it is important for those listening that it work. And that means that it has to scale. It can't just be a massive deluge of every singer on the planet suddenly on this platform. Or you're not going to have a product that works and works well and actually does what it's supposed to do. No, and there, uh, there, it was. It's been so fascinating to see the reactions to stage time because they are um, there. First of all, have been more reactions to stage time than I expected, um, and for the most part, I'll say they're overwhelmingly positive. But there are always those edge cases where I'll, I'll have somebody say, um, "Hey, an exclusive waitlist is a terrible way to go about rolling out in this industry." Um, and it's like, wait, it's it's not actually meant to be exclusive. It really just is. We onboard reverse chronologically. We we go with whoever signed up. Um, but trust me, you want this thing to work, and you're probably also the person who, if you get on and a single thing is broken, you're gonna be like, oh, stage time sucks. I'm never getting on again. I know. <laughs> I like. I don't. I even have to walk through my team through the things where they're saying, you know, every time we add a new team member, they come in. They're super super pumped to join stage time. We're pumped to have them. And then they start to see behind the scenes what's going on. Um, and stage time is pretty organized behind the scenes. Um, we have an amazing team that I'm super proud of. And we're using best practices for, for tech companies um, as opposed to best practices for uh, companies in the arts. Those are two pretty different things. Yeah. Um, but even then, they'll say, oh, well, you know that um, you know this, this button on this page routes a little funny. And it's like, yeah, well, we also, uh, you know, haven't built this entire page. So which one do you want? Do you want to fix that one really small item that feels critical to you because you've just entered and you've just seen this thing? Or do you want to, do you want to build the next step? Because we're a small lean team, we're a startup, there's only so much we can do. So there are, there are a lot of times I have to just put blinders on and go, I know, I know it's not perfect right now. Uh, it may be someday. Um, but there's just a massive amount of, of testing, validation, details, work, capital expended tax forms for me to fill out wild, weird words that I, and acronyms that I didn't know I was going to have to Google before we can do that. Um, and those things are mission critical. I can't do yeah. anything until I set all of this up. So yeah, that's the trade off and right now. You can, you can please most of the people a lot of the time, but you can't please everybody all the time. Like it's, Absolutely just, it's, it's impossible. It's completely and truly impossible. Yep. And we're at an interesting time in history where social media is not everybody's favorite thing. And I get it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I made myself sit down with a couple of really good friends and watch the social dilemma. Cause I didn't want to watch that shit alone. That would be depressing as the CEO <laughs> of a tech startup, uh, social network. <laughs> um, but I, I just, I, I really believe that when it comes to big tech and when it becomes to social media networks, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, those were all built and conceived of 10 to 15 years ago. They all look like they were built and conceived of 10 to 15 years ago, which is really when the internet was still in its infancy. We're still in the infancy of the internet. And so to presume that five, excuse me, but white dudes between the age of 25 and 35, like nailed it and got social media right the first time is ridiculous. There are yeah. no, there are no female CEOs. There are no CEOs of color in the, in the big tech world. Um, and so I just kind of try to put blinders on and say, you know what, if likes and comments make people feel shitty from a mental health perspective, we don't need them. Artists get plenty of validation and feedback from every other area of their lives. I don't think we need likes and comments right now. Maybe yeah. that'll change someday. Maybe people want to send kudos and it'll become a place where everybody is really professional and kind to each other. But until I can guarantee a positive experience with a feature, we're not adding it. And that, that just takes time, it takes research, yeah. time, money, validation. And that's the phase we're still in. Well, I'm fully convinced that uh, the main reason for likes and comments, vanity metrics in general, um, was so that is so that the large companies can um, consistently track engagement and rank engagement on the site, which tells you whose stuff we want out there longer. I always tell people the reason we, we, we can screw with the algorithm is with, with likes and comments, but predominantly comments and high engagement in conversation. And the reason that, the reason that works when it comes to screwing with the algorithm is because 
they are companies that depend on heavy ad base for their income. So the longer your content, which is popular, is on a site, and the longer it is pushed, the more people are staying on the platform longer, and therefore, by law of averages, are clicking on more ads. It has nothing to do with actually your user experience. It is entirely about selling something and making money. And the easiest way to do that, to rank engagement, or to, to rank popularity and, and time is by constant engagement. Um, so I, I'd see no issue with not having uh, the, the likes and the comments. In fact, I was talking to somebody the other day that referenced Pinterest. And the reason that they love Pinterest is because it's the social, it's the social media platform without the social. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, it's all content. And the content speaks for itself. And that's it. You don't have to interact with people. Not everybody doesn't want to interact. And then you don't have the keyboard warriors that decide they want to bombard you with a terrible review because they thought you hit a note wrong or you don't yeah. look good in your costume. <laughs> no. And that's wild that the, the, the folks sitting on their couches, uh, you know, over somewhere in the EU feel totally comfortable ripping a young singer apart. And that then, because it's the same YouTube video they have to submit to every freaking house in the country it is naturally going to be consumed as part of their narrative. And that's just not fair. I don't care yeah. how you think I look in my dress. I don't need the person potentially hiring me to consume that as the same time they're hearing my voice. And I will say that's probably one of the more fun things about building stage time. Um, I mean, I, I sat down and I, I have this very complex, stupid grid that I made for me and me alone, uh, ranking all the other features of all the other social networks on some convoluted scale that I don't even think I could read anymore. Um, but I, I didn't know what I was doing with the tech startup. I was like, well, they said I need research, so I guess I'll start here. Um, but ranking every feature from every network in terms of how it worked for artists. And I was looking at things like, okay, Facebook has a comprehensive profile. If you really want to break it down in terms of can it capture media? Can it capture information? Um, can I distribute to my friends really easily? But it's 0% professional. So how, value, how valuable is that technology feature on Facebook? It doesn't get a super high score. Instagram, YouTube, of course, they're brilliant at the process of uploading and sharing media. Are there professional boundaries? Is it intended for professional use? Therefore, are those tools as useful to me in this context? And so when I started to see which things were ranking low, when it then came to how do I build stage time and what behaviors do I bake into stage time? It was like turning these little dials where it was, it was like, okay, well, engagement is going to be important um, for any social network and especially again, a, a venture capital venture. Um, but I need it to not look like the things that are causing problems in my industry. So how do we attack that? And that's been the really fun, rewarding thing of, mm. you know what, we don't need likes and comments. We don't, we don't want the newsfeed on the desktop to look like a regular social network. We want it to be, you know, media and audio first, add your own value judgment and your words by authoring a post below that, that should be secondary to just peddling your portfolio or peddling your work. Um, yeah. And that's, that's the fun trade-off when you do it yourself is you don't like that. Okay. Change it. Yeah. Do you have any advice for anybody, any creatives um, that are earlier in their journey than you are that are coming up kind of behind you? Any advice for those people? Yeah. Don't feel guilty when you enjoy things that aren't what you learned in music school. That's just fine. You're not, not a, a singer or an instrumentalist in your off season. We don't tell football players that they're not athletes during the off season. Uh, and if you can't work because it's a global pandemic or for some other circumstance, you're not, not a singer and you are allowed to enjoy the things that you do to fill your time and to fill your bank account in the meantime. Um, Cause I, I experienced a lot of guilt with that. And I still, every time I talk to somebody, are you going to do singing? Or are you going to do stage time? I don't know. There's no singing right now. I don't have to choose between anything and I'm not going to feel guilty about pursuing stage time because I think it's a good idea that could bring a lot of value to other people. But the yeah. only way I got there was um, continuing down a side hu hustle path because I found it interesting and, and valuable even when it wasn't big and exciting. Um, and so just be open to those things. There's absolutely nothing to feel guilty about. Wonderful. Anything else that you want to add that we didn't know? Thank you so much for having me. It's it's so fun to get to talk about this with somebody who's also sitting in that intersection of tech and business and music and the classical music world. So yeah, this has been wonderful. Uh, uh, really digging into stage time. Um, I think it you answered a lot of the questions that I have been asked 
by other individuals. <laughs> um, so it's great. Now I will just point them to this podcast episode. Be like, listen to this. You can hear it straight from the source, all the real data, all the real information. And where can people find you and Stage Time? Uh, you can find us at stagetimearts.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. If you're interested in contributing to Artist Relief Tree to help artists struggling with COVID-19 shutdowns, please visit artistrelieftree.com. This has been an episode of This Artistic Life. Find us on your favorite podcast apps and subscribe. Follow This Artistic Life on Instagram at This Artistic Life and on Twitter at Artistic Vita. For more information on today's guest, visit our website, thisartisticpodcast.com.